Today on The Balanced Voice, we're pleased to have Arnold Ventures to discuss needed change in the criminal justice system. Arnold Ventures funds research to better understand the root cause of problems and build evidence about what works and what doesn't to inform policy solutions. Specifically, our guest today is Jennifer Doliak, Executive Vice President of Criminal Justice at Arnold Ventures. Jennifer comes to Arnold Ventures with over 15 years of experience as an academic economist. She is a leading expert on the economics of crime and criminal justice policy and a vocal proponent of using rigorous research to inform policy. Jennifer holds a PhD in economics from Stanford University and a bachelor's degree in economics and mathematics from Williams College. In addition to her work at Arnold Ventures, she is also the director of the Justice Tech Lab at Texas A&M University. This is the Balanced Voice Podcast. It's so nice to have you. And um, I mean, you do incredible work. We're, Jen, Jennifer and I were like looking through the list of research you've done and the people you've worked with, and it's just incredible. Tell us about what you do, um, and then tell us a little bit about Arnold Ventures. Sure. So I'm an academic economist by training. I've been a professor for, I think I made it 11 years before I was able to escape to AV. Um, and so, so yeah, my my work is mostly research. It's studying, uh, testing what works in the criminal justice space, especially to improve crime outcomes, improve criminal justice outcomes, make us all safer. Mm. Um, and uh, with the goal of public safety, with the goal of public safety, okay. right? It's sort of the. I mean, there could be potentially be many goals yes, that we might work to. Whatever your right. goals are, trying to figure out what interventions actually work. It's to actually a very good question yes. of the goal because in I in sort of researching this, I kept thinking, what is the goal? Is the mm-hmm. goal public safety? Is the goal victim rights is the goal the experience mm-hmm. for the the criminal the alleged criminal what they're going through what happens after and i do think goals are important because they shape the questions we ask right, right? yep but tell us keep going yeah yeah so most i mean most of my research i would say uh the outcome measure we're looking at is either crime or say recidivism mm-hmm. so reoffending so something on the public safety <laughs> side okay um uh but economists like to say like where you know you tell us what your goals are and and we'll tell you what to do. Like yeah. we don't feel comfortable telling you what your goal should, should be. Yeah, values, and you know, political yeah. stuff that we don't want to intervene in. And so, um, anyway, so tend to be very analytical in that way. Uh, but yeah, so spend a lot of time with data and and um, trying to figure out what works in the real world. And what drew me to AV is I got to a point where I you know had built all this expertise as a researcher, um, but it's really hard from within the academy to actually have an impact in the real world. And AV um, has a really strong reputation for caring about evidence and data as a way to inform policy. Basically, Mm -hmm. their their interest is the same as mine in terms of wanting to figure out what works um, and and actually go out there and test and innovate and try new things and then evaluate them to see. And invest in those things that you came out with, right? Right. Figure out, like, you know, there, there are so many things about the criminal justice system that we all think could be working better, but we don't know how to fix it. And so the way, what I usually wind up saying to policymakers all the time is like, we should just be trying lots of stuff, Mm -hmm. but then be humble about how hard it is to solve these problems and, and just hold ourselves accountable and actually evaluate whether this had an impact, whether this had the impact we wanted. And if it didn't try something else, right? right. Like like, try to fail fast rather than pretend we're not going to fail at all. Um, And so that's very much AV's 
uh, worldview mm -hmm. in a lot of policy spaces, um, inc including criminal justice. And it's very much my worldview. And so uh, it was funny when I first took the job, I, whenever I would tell people, everyone would just say, oh my gosh, that's such a good match. I'm loving it. And it's been such a good brilliant. fit for me. I mean, I've, we've had mm -hmm. many conversations from um, Lauren, John Arnold, uh, to Evan Mintz, to you, many throughout, especially the last two years, is we've really started to dive in to the details around criminal justice mm -hmm. and criminal justice reform. Honestly, George Floyd changed so much, yeah. right? Because we were just doing our mission to solve and prevent crime, and it was sort of very much in a box yeah. until okay. George Floyd's death. And then it became unpacking all of the criminal justice system and almost flipping an entire system and really asking hard questions about law enforcement mm -hmm. and um, police brutality and district attorneys. And just all of it became very, very complicated. Mm -hmm. And we found ourselves as we sort of, you know, from our angle or, uh, you know, our voice for victims, we found ourselves being pushed into this space that was new for us too. Yeah, yeah. And so I, you know, had many conversations with Evan and I was, and to Jen's point, like I'm sitting here writing notes as he's speaking, like, okay, I'll research. <laughs> I'm going to look that up later yeah, and figure yeah. that stuff out later. Well, and you can't have a staunch position really on anything because it's kind of yes, but. Everything is almost yes, but almost. Almost, right. right. Yeah. I mean, there are some things that where the, the evidence is really clear. Like okay. at this point, we have a ton of evidence that if your goal is reducing crime, especially violent crime, hiring more police and putting more police on the streets is okay. really effective intervention is or it is, is effective is effective okay. whoa say that again yes <laughs> if your goal is reducing crime especially okay. violent crime yes hiring more police increasing police presence is highly effective now the reason that is an uncomfortable because the defund um, police situation, right? It's, it's um, because crime is no is not the only outcome that we might care about, right? And there are other costs. There are potentially others, yes. especially social costs, to putting a police officer on every corner um, that we are now much more aware of than mm -hmm. we've been in the past. And so, thinking about what those costs are, then you know, cancels out some of the ben the crime reduction benefits. And so, um, so for example, on that yeah. one, so you've come out with that research, mm -hmm. you've got your, your, it's not no longer hypothesis. Yeah. You've got a decision on a position you're taking. Now, what does Arnold Ventures do with that? Go to the city and say, look, you've had 5,000 police mm -hmm. for a city that probably needs 20 or 30,000. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do? Or at least 7,000. Or at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think realistically what we try to do is go to policymakers with a menu of options, knowing that not every city council person is going to be open to hiring right. police given the current conversation. Yeah. But uh, my own view, and I think the view of a lot of folks that work on our team, is that police have an important role to play mm -hmm. in the the crime reduction conversation. And um, and if you're worried about the, the negative effects of hiring police officers and increasing police presence, then we should be getting really serious about um, about changing what police officers do all day mm -hmm. yeah. and making sure we're making policing better, um, not just hiring more officers, but to reducing, right. reducing the number of officers will, based on all the research, make crime go up. Yeah. And so if I mean, we can do that, we can still do that. But yeah. if, we, if we then are serious about 
maintaining public safety, we need to be ready with another intervention that is going to compensate. Do you all look at things like, you know, uh, one of our former um, uh, chiefs used to say relational policing. It's this movement of of relational policing. So, yes. I've heard this. Oh, so uh, Acevedo used to call it relational policing where you're building a relationship. Community policing. Relational policing. Like, and you're building a relationship with the community rather than just be the ones that to right rather than just yeah. being a warrior that's yeah. yeah right challenge with yeah so this community policing idea is like it sounds great i think we all have an idea in our heads about like friendly officer bob who yeah. takes everyone on the, on the, yeah. you know, on the neighborhood, neighborhood right yeah. and uh, the question is how do you train a whole bunch of friendly officer bobs like mm-hmm. what does the training academy look like for that like mm-hmm. what exactly is the job description so it's just it's remarkably difficult to just to even like define what a good police officer is or Looks does like all day a, and yeah. then and then the question for you know my team and the, and researchers is how do you how do you either screen and hire that kind of person yeah. or or come up with a training program personality that tests that yeah and then how do you you know hold them accountable on the other end if they're not doing a good job how do we i may need to go work so, for her because I'm if she's the ideas going in my head i'm like they need amazing. trauma-informed care training right. they yeah. need this they yeah and there's, there's so many things, things. You know, talking to law enforcement and working so closely with law enforcement is a simple move as hiring from within the community. Mm-hmm. People who are known to have been in that community for a long time and have the best interests of the community yeah. at heart. It looks like that community that and they're placing like it, right? Yeah. So, you know, this is sort of a big um, discovery and it shouldn't be. But, you know, the, we, we started by talking about there's a sort of... Uh, bucket that people want to put Arnold Ventures in. There's a bucket now that they want to put Crime Stoppers in. Yeah. And again, Evan is so dear to me because we're always talking about these things. And the bucket of Arnold Ventures, and by the way, I've had the benefit of sitting with Lauren and John Arnold and thinking, my gosh, if everyone could hear what you are saying. <laughs> and they have Yeah, I have to tell you my have... bias coming in here was I would have never thought that you would say we need more police. Interesting. That, that well, was a that's, bias. That's what I want to get to. And I think for com- some of it comes from this really big tug of war we've had as a country mm-hmm. the last few years about the about the role of a prosecutor or the role mm-hmm. of the DA. And we're seeing some of these the quote, judge. Well, yeah. Um, and I think even in your research, and I want to pull the right words, you know, you, I, I hate to say liberal DAs, but the, yeah, yeah. I'm pulling it from your research. Yeah. I mean, you, you looked at 35 jurisdictions or one of your colleagues did. I mean, you mm-hmm. were really trying to see, like, let's measure the impact um, over a 10-year span yeah, of time, yeah. I think you were saying, you know, what happens to crime rates and um, the notion of scaling back. So here's yeah. some of the things, scaling back the prosecution of non-violent misdemeanors. I don't want tattoos, but I swear one day I'm going to get a tattoo <laughs> that says like, you know, scaling back prosecution of non-violent misdemeanors <laughs> because everyone jumps to, oh, so you want to let everybody yeah, but yeah. out? Right, right, right. Like every murderer out? The serial you, murder? Yeah. Or yeah. Um, wander the street? Exactly. Yeah. And no, like, but if he has a joint, I definitely don't want to put him in jail so he loses his job. Yeah, Sorry. Exactly. So those are, you know, diverting defendants to treatment don't programs instead of punishment. Recommending um, against cash bail for defendants who might otherwise be detained pre-trial. That's really important when you when you're starting with non-violent misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone in the criminal justice space agreed agrees on principle with that. We all yeah. do. Yeah. But then it went 
did it go did it get out of control or it's, do we just think it yeah. got out of control yeah this this area is super hot right now right. In, in a yeah. way that it's um, i called it a I hot mean, button issue but i was embarrassed to say that yeah i mean this is one of those spaces where you know even even a team like mine that is really interested in in you know we there's a there's a bunch of evidence we should be reducing the number of people we detain pre-trial mm-hmm. there's now a bunch of ed- evidence we should be erring towards leniency for first time defendants nonviolent, but misdemeanor and felony, honestly. Uh, There's good evidence for both. Give an example of a nonviolent. Yeah. Um, So theft, um, burglary, those kinds of things. You're seeing the videos of like these, you know, six or seven people breaking into a Nordstrom's in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what is your response to that? That that they should do that? There's no consequences. If they're first time, if they're first Uh, time, you're an an economist. Like, aren't we destroying... Yeah, yeah, no, it's clearly not good. What's going on in San Francisco is clearly not good. Okay. Um, I think, uh, yeah, my my personal reaction is they should be arrested and probably mm-hmm. convicted, especially if it's a if it seems to be a more organized right. phenomenon there, at yeah. least based on the stories that are in the news. Um I so my my own research was on um misdemeanor prosecution in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, where Boston's located. We were talking about Massachusetts before. Um and and Wait, I'm outnumbered by two people from Massachusetts. <laughs> I just want you to know that I'm the only Texas rep and but they are living in Texas. And she's amazing. I'm amazing by default, not really at all, but just because we kind of grew up near each other. Um, so, so we looked in, in Suffolk County at what happens if you happen to get lucky and get assigned to a lenient prosecutor versus a harsh prosecutor and every, you know, prosecutors are human. And so even in similar cases, they might treat the case, they might do something different with the cases. And so if you get lucky and you get this lenient prosecutor, your case is more likely to be dismissed. We looked at what happened to you going forward mm-hmm. and recidivism for those defendants dropped by 50%, percent right? And so, and it, and it was driven by the first-time defendants. And so really the story that comes out of it is that giving someone a second chance to avoid that first conviction on their record seems to allow them to change courts on their own. That doesn't mean there are no consequences, right? That person was arrested. They had to show up to court. They probably missed their work that day. They might've lost their job. Like Mm -hmm. who knows, but they didn't wind up with a criminal record. Mm -hmm. And so then- What period of time is this over? Um, so we're looking, we have, we have data from over a decade, but this is, um, this is looking at individual cases. So So just going through that process and somebody saying, I'm giving you a chance. The case was literally dismissed. redemption in sense that the was case, case was yeah. dismissed and they felt like okay, I'm not doing that again. Just prosecuted. So they, they could have gotten dropped yeah. in the next hearing, but they in practice they weren't. They went on for six months. Most likely they're getting a conviction. And so have Was there any program that they went through? Did you do any of that study? No. Really? No, it's just but a dismissal. About first time first offenders. Time this, and these this study it was a nonviolent misdemeanor. Yes. So it was yeah. the shop yeah. thing. Yeah. It was just yeah. Like, yeah. The minor stuff. It's not walking in, stealing $2,000 worth of stuff. Right. Potentially. Especially if it's like, if it seems organized. So in all of these cases, again, we're we're thinking about, right. We're thinking about the cases where one prosecutor would have handled it differently than another one. Mm -hmm. In cases like you're describing, my hunch is most prosecutors would say, absolutely, we're prosecuting that case Mm -hmm. and moving it forward Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, and and even the the policy that, that wound up, um, changing in Suffolk County when when Rachel Rollins, a more progressive DA, came in was to have a, a presumption of non-prosecutions. Just change the default. The default is we're not going to prosecute these cases. If you have a reason to prosecute, you can do it. 
Yeah. And so it's just I like that. Just shifting a, it a little bit. Like a culture change. Right. Just like it's just we're going to err a little more toward leniency in these cases. Yeah. And so there was another study that looked at nonviolent felonies. So that's the theft and burglary kind of cases. <laughs> In Harris County, mm-hmm. so local. Um, and they looked at, um, in that case, those cases are typically not just dropped up front, um, but you could get a deferred adjudication. Mm-hmm. So basically, the second chance then is if you make it through a probationary period without more misconduct, your charges are wiped off. We'll right. Just say this never happened. Um, again, reduced recidivism by 50%, wow. 5 0. It's like, that is, and, and it's cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. It's cheaper to do less. Now, let me ask, <laughs> yeah. Let, let yeah. me ask the tough question yeah. of how do we know that they haven't done any? Thing in that uh, that period because they, 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 they just didn't get caught. Maybe, Maybe they didn't get caught. Yes, right. I, I mean, mean there's just something in yeah, our good audience point. in our world. I, I can hear the question being asked from yeah. people listening. So we know that that could have been. It, it could have been happening. I will say, I mean, these people are are on some form of probation. So if anything, it'll be biased, and they're going they're under some sort of supervision. Mm-hmm. So if anything, there's a bias toward catching them more often. Yeah. Than if just nothing, if they hadn't been on that probation, but. So there's a heightened awareness around them. There's more yeah. probability of that they would get caught because yeah. having to check in with somebody and everybody's right, aware. Right. But yes, I mean, totally. In all of this, right? We only we only see recidivism that um, that people that people get caught get for. But comparing the sort of treatment and com- and control groups here, yeah. the same thing is going to be happening with that control group that didn't get the deferred adjudication. They have the same. You know, they might not get caught too. Yeah. So yeah. It's, but the observed crime, the crime you're getting caught for, drops by half. Thank you to our sponsor, Fliplock, for making this episode possible. Fliplock is a door lock unlike any other lock that was created as a nationwide, straightforward solution to protect your people, whether that be in universities, dorms, daycares, hospitals, or even government buildings. It can be added to nearly any door to keep you and yours safe. We are proud to have such a strong and like-minded sponsor of the Balanced Voice podcast. Check out Flipblock at flipblock.com. That's F-L-I-P-L-O-K.com. Wow. So why do you think we as a country are sort of moving to this, to an extreme sort of view of criminal yeah. justice reform? I mean, I feel like you all are the hub in terms of expertise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I honestly think it's because violent crime rates have been rising. I mean, I think we, you know, had... Um, a couple of decades there from the mid 90s when Wait, state what you're talking yeah. about though first because some viewers may not know where because we see this so closely yes. we know what the movement is we feel or one might feel forget what we feel we're just we're just the voice of victims and looking at what's going on at least in Harris County yeah. and, and other major cities where we're asked um, there just seems to be this swing of leniency across the spectrum for violent okay. crime to, mm-hmm. to low-level offenses. Mm-hmm. We want to give everybody a second chance. Mm-hmm. We want everybody can't afford to be held pretrial, and it's going to ruin everybody's life if if there's consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're dealing with first-time nonviolent offenders, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. We can't be ruining somebody's life yeah. because they've made a, a poor choice totally one agree. time. Yes. And think about if you have kids. If you have a kid who's been yeah. great and made us and think of us that can afford school. to get our kids out of it, but yeah, those that right, can't. Right, right, right. Okay. Right. In the general population yeah. or general community. But as the level of offenses escalates, yeah. it seems like we're still taking a very 
I, I don't know what word to use, pro progressive or lenient mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. approach. You look at cities like New York. You look yeah. at what happened in Seattle. Yeah. You, you look, even some would say in Harris County, Where how do we get here and what's the basis? What are Do you feel that way? We're seeing this in the major cities, but do you feel it's moving towards more leniency? That's interesting. I, so the question I usually get is why is everyone pushing back on reform now? <laughs> so that, that goes in the direction. But I think that's where we're going. But I think, keeps, yeah, I mean, there definitely, it's, there's like a polarization mm -hmm. um, in, in more conversations around criminal justice policy than there had been. I think for a long time it was like, oh, well, that's just you know, the way it is. have fallen yeah. so much since the, the early 90s or mid 90s. Um, we're all willing now to kind of re-examine what our standard policies are and, and what our assumptions are. And are there other ways to do this? And part of this, I mean, part of what I love about working in criminal justice policy is you wind up with uh, with people from very different parts of the political spectrum who are all at the same table with the same goals, which doesn't happen in mm -hmm. any other policy area, yeah. right? Yeah. So you've got the libertarian conservatives who see the criminal justice system as another big failed government program, right? Like let's, mm -hmm. incarceration is really expensive. So mm -hmm. is, there, is there a cheaper way to do this? Um, you have more religious conservatives who believe in redemption and second chances. Mm -hmm. And so we start thinking like, maybe we don't have to have someone in prison for 50 years mm -hmm. for something they did when they were 18, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And then you have people on the left who are worried about it was racial disparities and socioeconomic disparities and the bias. Um, and all of those are legitimate concerns and good reasons to rethink our standard Absolutely. policies. Um, and we've also, we've also just like learned a lot since yes. the mid nineties about what works and what doesn't. You have access to more information you too. Know, yeah. Analyze. So yeah. there are things that, you know, are stereotypically tough on crime that don't work. There are also a lot of things that are like, stereotypically lenient that don't work. Right. I mean, I'm an economist. I believe really strongly in incentives. Like mm -hmm. people do respond to incentives. Yeah. Um, one thing we've learned is that people, especially the type of person who's, you know, on the margin of committing crime, they don't respond to long sentences as a deterrent. They're not thinking that far ahead. Yeah. Okay. But they do respond to the probability of getting caught. Mm -hmm. And so that is like all the research and I think policy focus should be on how do we increase the probability that people get caught when they do offend. And then we can think about what the consequences should be. Because there have to be consequences. There, right? have, there have to yeah. be. Yeah. Even in your yes. conversation with Allison uh, and you guys were talking about this was your podcast probable causation um and actually i think now I'm, you might have to correct me i don't know if it was the prosecutor prosecutorial thank you reform and local crime rates uh-huh um gosh i've listened to everything you've done now after <laughs> is, no i think it was allison you were talking about or she was studying you guys were looking at the role of police brutality police force mm -hmm. and this this concept of incentives. If a police officer knows they've worked with the DA for so long, they're arm in arm, um, there's not really the chance mm -hmm. that they're going to be held a yeah. responsible because it's sort of like a good old boy system. Yes. Then there's no incentive for the police officer to mitigate Right. That was sort of the conversation. Yeah. So this is with Allison Stashko. Okay. So, yeah. I knew it was an so, Allison. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Final click for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she's she's thinking about especially um, accountability for police. Yes. With wrongdoing. And yeah. So, and one of the concerns that's come up is like the DAs that are supposed to hold the police accountable also have to work with the police to hold the criminals okay, accountable. Yeah. Right. And so they need to have a good working relationship. And so that is going to bias the prosecutor toward not being tough on the police, even when it's Warranted. Which in turn, but you need everybody. But yeah, equally accountable. That's right, <laughs> sir. Maybe not be as observant to some type of standard. Yeah. Is the argument. So my point is, when you talk about incentives and you mm -hmm. talk about this fear, maybe not if I'm going to serve for thirty years, but if I get caught, mm -hmm. something's going to happen. Yeah, I feel like we're losing that. 
I feel like we're, well, we're trying to that. fix that. We're spending a lot of time and energy thinking about how do we improve police investigations? How do we improve like the quality of forensic evidence? Like all that kind of stuff. Your to risk be assessment to tools were amazing. The, yeah. AV has invested a lot in risk assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, I've personally done a bunch of research on DNA databases, law enforcement DNA databases, and they have a huge deterrent effect on crime. Again, same story. People know that they're more likely to get caught when they're in one of these databases and they just clean up their acts. They, yeah. they get on to, so you know, this is, this is the turning point. They get on, yeah. Yeah, they get on. For my family, we find new family members with that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about right. it. Anyways, I may have a new cousin. Go ahead. Amazing. Right. Amazing. My is going to die when they see this. Tell me, tell me about what some of the incentives are. What are you talking about incentives? Like specifically? Yes. Like I remember, like I remember when the first step back, like I didn't know if that was a good one or not, which I'm sure you know of, right? Mm-hmm. Then it was economic empowerment zones. And so we saw some of those come. Are those, do those things mixed? Do they help you? And are those the kind of incentives? So when I'm talking about incentives, yeah, I mean, um, it's, you mean specific incentives down the roll? Um, of, of just, it's really like anything that you might care about that might change your behavior. So we all, I mean, economists like to think we all respond to incentives all the time. Yeah. We want to be liked by people. That's an incentive. We respond to money. We might choose to the individual more. Yes. To the individual. Like when when I am making a decision, I'm thinking about lots of different factors and whatever. So changing those different factors that I care about will incentivize me to move and want to do one thing versus another. And so as, as I look at the criminal justice system and how to fix various parts of it. I often think about who is actually making the decisions that we wish were different and how can we directly affect whatever their concerns are so that they are incentivized to move in a different direction. Yeah. So for instance, I've, a lot of my research has been in how to help people um, coming out of jail or prison reintegrate mm-hmm. into society mm-hmm. and reduce so recidivism and all of that. Works. And so a big question there is how so do we increase fun. employment? Like it's hard to yes. clean up your act if you don't have a job. Right? I'm so glad I have an analogy, right? I, I work with victims and survivors of trafficking. Mm-hmm. And and there's this one survivor that I said, look, you do go through this program. You go through this other education, pro- like go through a therapeutic program. Yeah. I will give you, a, find you, a, I will give you a job in the yeah. oil and gas industry and yeah. you have a felony and you probably won't get a job there. You wouldn't yeah. get a job there normally. Yeah. But I had to find a way. And then now that person's working in the nonprofit world. So yeah. you had, I had to give this person a path yep. to what could provide this person with economic independence. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and not everyone has someone like you who's going to actually like how do we right 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 how do you get individual employers like they're worried about something there's something some reason and most employers are worried about hiring second chance workers yeah yeah and so what is it in my mind it's like the big question is what is it they're worried about and how can we address those concerns so that they will be more likely to hire Mm -hmm. someone with a record and so that's what yeah my team is now spending a lot of time thinking about i love it i would love to talk to you more about that because i I had to get hr okay with it i had to i had to use an independent contractor to bring i mean they came in a major oil and gas company with me which normally would not had a a door into so but but more of those companies if you hold them with their social responsibility yeah yeah should absolutely be investing in those types of programs and give them services along the way yeah do we so they can over complicating the system no i mean yeah just simplify this to say you know first time nonviolent offenders mm-hmm. we need to have the presumption of no prosecution mm-hmm. and we've got it if we're dealing with violent felony offenders as a community we agree this needs to be a sort of vip treatment not you know um, handled 
delicately, accurately. accurately. You know, I'm not saying yeah. speed it up and convict. No, yeah, I'm saying yeah. we don't let them sit in, in pretrial and jail forever. Um, y- we handle it with all the concentration and due diligence. And then um, al- along the spectrum, when somebody's serving time, that we invest in, yeah. in yeah. something. Because these people are coming out. We had uh, Reginald, Reginald on the podcast. Yeah. He said, I, Do you I know served. him? I've connected him to Evan. So, okay, great. Um, Fabulous. I've connected him to you guys. But he came out of prison. He said, I got $15 yeah. and dropped off at a bus station. Right. Crazy. Bus stop down the street. Right. You tell me what I'm going to do with that. Right. What is he going to do with that? Yeah. No, a lot of conversations I have, especially with folks who are, you know, to my left and pushing more progressive policies around um, around reintegration, uh, it's like we'll often put it on the employers. It's like what you know why you, every employer should just should be hiring people coming out of prison. And my usual response is, we as a society have decided to lock people up for decades and invest nothing, nothing. in yeah, them, and, and then we blame the employers yeah. when they get out. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Back them. Like that's on us, right? Like yeah. we need to make different choices about investing in people both before they yes. they wind up locked up in the first place. Yeah. But then if they are, invest in them knowing they're likely to get out and be members of our community going forward. So you have a podcast. You work with Arnold Ventures. Your um, podcast is called Probable Causation, which is fantastic. Are Who are you speaking to? Are you speaking to people in the criminal justice system or sort of the everyday person who might be worried about crime or not even thinking about crime? Who's your audience? Ooh, great question. I think realistically, it's people who are... Um, worried about crime and somewhat interested in general in data and evidence um and then folks in the criminal justice system who care about having it you know doing an effective job mm-hmm. um but maybe don't have the same access to research that i do that so basically do. just trying to yeah. translate all the amazing work that's being done in the academic community now like mm-hmm. we are there are so many questions there's so many things we don't know the answer to but we are generating more answers yeah. every just week just ask chat gpt so, It'll yeah <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, so most of both on the podcast and at AV, trying to just get that information out into the hands of people who can use it. It's so important. I think as the world, um, you know, a few years ago, you could look at a major city and, and kind of say like, well, this part's a little sketchy, but mm-hmm. most of the most of the city's really not bad, right? Mm-hmm. You can walk your kids, go to the park, go shopping during the day. They can take the bus, blah, blah. Now crime is sort of permeated everywhere. Hmm. And so now all of a sudden everybody's interested, Yeah, right? People who didn't care about this topic before. I, I've been with Crime Stopper since 2006. I remember trying to talk to people about public safety and they'd say, thank you, dear. It's just not our issue. Yeah. Now we're getting so many calls mm. Yeah, because it's everywhere. But I think before we get emotional, before we have somebody that's committed a crime or become a victim of crime, mm-hmm. this is something we all have to pause yeah. mm-hmm. and look and at attention to. and invest in solutions that are not emotional. And, and come to the middle and get on the same page. And right? politically motivated because yeah. we are wasting so much valuable time. And people will say, we've been political because we talk about court case outcomes, but court, talking about what's happening in real time yeah. is just as valuable as studying what has happened yep. in real time. Yeah. We're all doing the same thing. Yeah. I have a question. What's your, what do you feel like in this space is your biggest accomplishment? Like you look back at them, it's like, damn, I did. I'm glad. Like that was awesome <laughs> that myself and my team did. Or um, Let's see. Well, I'm, I'm pretty new to AV. So AV's done lots, lots of wonderful things, yes, but yes. I don't get any credit for that. Um, uh, let's see. So I have my own research on um, ban the box policies, showing that they're 
actually somewhat counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So they they ban the box is um, we were just talking about reintegration and trying to help people get jobs. Uh, it removes information from job applications about whether you have a criminal record. Mm-hmm. And the idea is the hope is it will get people's foot in the door so they can build rapport with build a relationship with a, with and an employer yeah, and then yeah. actually get hired when their background is actually checked. They won't care as much. Um, but economists like me look at that and say, well, if they can't have, they don't have the information, they're just going to try to guess. You're not changing anything about the incentives they're facing. They're now going to try to guess and they're going to look at the person who's applying for a job and think like, do, a, do I think they probably have a criminal record or not? Oh, wow. And then they discriminate based on race. And that uh, there's now lots of research, including my own, showing that that is what happened when Ban the Box passes. That makes so, so much sense. So Ban the Box is when, when we get an so app. So offensive, though. That I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Where you block out the... Did, did we do that in Texas? Are we allowed to do that? No, I think what we did in Harris County is say that you can't... No, you can no longer not hire based on somebody having committed a felony. So in general, yeah. The yeah. EEOC at the federal level has guidance saying no employer can just have a blanket mm-hmm. policy that says I won't. we won't hire anyone with a criminal record. Okay, you so ban the, the blocks it out. And what you're saying is when you do that, all you do is that person's fixated on trying to figure out if that person's a criminal or not. And then, and then it essentially broadens the discrimination. On, on certain races. Yeah. yeah, based on so race. The solution not ban the box? So my, yeah, my general push is, is um, more information tends to be more effective than less. Because mm-hmm. what employers want to know is, is this the per- person going to be a reliable employee mm-hmm. that's going to show up every day? What additional information can we give them that would help them figure that out? Nice. Um, also thinking about like insurance, like the extent that what they're worried about is negligent hiring lawsuits or something like that yeah Yeah. how do we shift that risk from the employer to somebody else yeah so those are the kinds of innovations we're thinking about but yeah and then how do you go and execute on those like you go and talk to companies like i'm all about results like oh great research great ideas but where the hell does it come down to the bottom line of yeah so what av does a lot of is um is trying to not only support research so we have more potential solutions but when we find a solution thinking about okay what does a policy look like so on the insurance front, one um, one city came to us and said, this is a really neat idea. What does a policy look like if we wanted to actually implement So it turns that? into policy. So we, we're going to work with them to actually figure out, like, what does a policy look I like? We're going to go pilot it there and, and see what but happens. But are there, like, education programs that y'all do? It's like, once you do that and you find a policy, you're like, hey, let's go do that. Do y'all educate the community about those types of things or yeah so if something if something works enough that we're ready to go scale it then there's a lot of education of policymakers, education of community members and, the, and then we also have an advocacy team that actually goes out and lobbies and That's we've been able to stuff. work with you on that Jen you're amazing yes Thanks for stopping by we have a hard stop at 12 30 <laughs> we have to schedule yeah, again I know <laughs> second Remember, two anytime talking about crimes what you do. Thank you for everybody at Arnold Ventures. You guys catch us next time on the Balanced Voice podcast. Take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's Balanced Conversation. You can find real solutions and tangible resources in our show notes at thebalancevoicepodcast.com. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at thebalancevoicepodcast and on Twitter at balancevoice underscore. Stay up to date on Runya's work by following her at The Runya Report. And we can't wait to see you next week for another Balanced Conversation.